Our scripture reading from this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61, beginning in the 10th verse. I invite you to follow along on the screens or in a Bible or to just close your eyes and listen. A reading from the prophet Isaiah. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks herself, decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For as the Lord delights in you, and your land, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we ask you that by the pouring out of your spirit on us today, that we would see Christ. And by his cross, you would bring us home from our exile. Amen. Well, I'm grateful for Brian um, for inviting me back here to preach again today and for explaining the whole business with why we're celebrating Christmas again a week after it already happened. Because um, that helps me, because our text today comes from um, my church's, what we call a lectionary, which is a system of reading set up for every Sunday. And so in my church tradition, we're still in Christmas season. And so this is the Old Testament passage for today. Um, so every time Brian has invited me to preach, I just open up my book and I figure out what passages for me to preach on today, and I just pick that. So it's super easy for me. So this is the um, Old Testament lesson for the Sunday after Christmas. It's a bit of a weird lesson because it starts at the very bottom of a chapter and goes into the next chapter. Um, but the whole, pa both passages together are one single unit. That's why we're treating them together today. Um, before I get into the passage, I want to start by reading you a quote written by a man named Anselm of Canterbury who lived 990 years ago in England. Um, let me read this to you. He says, Come then, Lord my God, Teach my heart where and how to seek you, where and how to find you. Lord, if you are not present here, where, since you are absent, shall I look for you? On the other hand, if you are everywhere, why then, since you are present, do I not see you? Never have I seen you, Lord my God, I do not know your face. What shall he do, most high Lord? What shall this your exile do, far away from you as he is? 
Well, I wonder if you, like Anselm, have a sense that you are in exile today. I wonder what it's like for you the week after Christmas in the very dregs of the year after all the celebration has passed and all the hype is over. I wonder if you find yourself on this last day of the year feeling a sense of heaviness and weariness. Can you feel in your heart that things are not as they should be and that we are far from home? Well, our text today comes to us from the book of the prophet Isaiah, the latter half of the book in which the word of God comes to Israel as she is in exile in Babylon. And as badly as I want to just skip to the reading and soak in the rich gospel that's found there, I need us to pause for a moment and try to remember what it is to be exiled Israel. You know, as deeply as I love my country and my people, I think that my culture is full of folks who are trying desperately hard to forget that they are in exile. That's the American dream, right? To be so wealthy, satisfied, healthy, and comfortable that no darkness, pain, or suffering ever visits our house. It's like we try to use our money and our possessions as Passover blood to keep the angel of death away. We try to cover our frailty, our nakedness, with success. We try to numb our exile by pursuing the dream of satiation and independence. But maybe you're here today because you don't want to pretend that you're doing fine. As far as I can see, nobody comes to church because they feel like they have their lives together. We come to church because we're dying to hear the words of life, to eat the bread from heaven, to remember that we belong to a new heavens and a new earth. The church is meant to be an outpost full of watchmen waiting for the morning, full of people looking for the sign that they can return home from their exile. So that's what I'm going to talk about this morning. I'm going to talk about our exile and our return home. Exile is an image to use in Holy Scripture to show us what our sin does to us. It goes back as far as the Garden of Eden, if you remember the story in Genesis 3. And they, it's Adam and Eve, right after they've eaten of the fruit, and they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the wind of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Exile is separation from God. It's descent into darkness, hiding in the trees, where we try to cover our nakedness and shame with things of our own making. We try to forget that we used to live in the sunshine, and so we have to rationalize to ourselves and justify why we need to live in the forest. Much of our lives is spent medicating our misery away or frantically, nervously trying to sew together dignity or success or fame or approval to cover up our ugliness and self-loathing. You know, a pastor friend, told me of a, story, a story of a man who came to him one day and said, you know, I think I got my PhD to impress my dad. I mean, I understand that, right? That's his ticket out of exile. Get a PhD and you're home. Welcome to the promised land. Or maybe get married and you'll never be lonely again. Get promoted and you'll get the respect that you crave. Tell a joke and get the laughs that make you high. These are the tickets home, or at least are the things that we can do to try to make our exile a little less painful. How did we get here? How did we end up in exile, away from God, hiding in the trees, sewing fig leaves together to cover ourselves? Well, I invite you today to enter with me into the story of Israel, to understand their tale of exile, so that we can understand our own lives a little bit better. So Israel, 
enter the promised land, and right after King, um, the king dies, King David dies, the, the, or King Solomon dies, the country splits into two. So you have a civil war and it splits into two, and then both of those kingdoms eventually get carted away into exile. How did that happen to God's people? Well, as soon as they get into the, the country, they're supposed to be this peculiar people, a witness to the rest of the world, people devoted to the worship of Yahweh through the priesthood and the temple, and their whole lives are supposed to be patterned after that model of a priesthood before God. And they forget. They cast off that calling, and they shake hands with the rest of the nations around them. They enter into foreign alliances. They start worshiping foreign gods. They start marrying foreign women, and they start dressing like foreigners. And slowly but surely, they degrade and lose their identity as the people of God. And in Isaiah, that's what the first half of Isaiah is concerned with, is rebuking Israel for the way that they have lost their Israelness. And in one of those oracles, in Isaiah 3, the Lord says this, In that day, the day of judgment and the day of exile that Isaiah is prophesying, in that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, crescents, pendants, bracelets, scarves, headdresses, armlets, sashes, perfume boxes, and amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty, she, that's Israel, shall sit on the ground. So what's the deal with the whole litany of clothing in the beginning part of that verse? Is this supposed to be that... Um, septum piercings and coach handbags are, are bad, and like that's the whole point. We're supposed to just eschew material possessions. Um, well, no, the point is that these are just fig leaves all over again. Israel went back into the woods to worship pagan gods, quite literally. That's what you see um, the prophets talking about under every green tree. They go back into the woods to worship these gods. They go onto the high hills, they build temples and erect ashra poles to worship the gods. And so she begins to dress like people who live in the woods and worship pagan gods. God gave Israel clothes to wear, just like he gave Adam and Eve clothes to wear. Do you remember that? He takes away their fig leaves, and he gives them a garment made out of what? Animal skin. And then in Exodus, just the next book over, God takes them out of their exile in Egypt and brings them to his holy mountain, and he clothes them with his words. In Deuteronomy, Moses talks about this as binding on your hand, wearing it as frontlets between your eyes. And some devout Jews later on would actually do that. They would tie that in leather around their head, on their arm, on their arm next to their heart, and on their hand as a way of showing that they are people covered by the word. But not just his words, God gave them the temple and the priesthood to give them some way of covering themselves, of finding absolution for their sins. The temple was a way of having the mediated presence of God in their midst through the offering of sacrifices. So Israel is supposed to be a people who are covered by the word of God and the blood of the sacrifice. And that's why in Deuteronomy, as Moses brings the people to the border of, of the Jordan River, right before they cross, he gives them the law again. He covers them with the word of God. And then they celebrate Passover, and then they go into the promised land. And that's to signify that this is a people who are covered by the word of God and the blood of the Paschal Lamb. But Israel spurned the gifts of God and sank into idolatry and misery. She cast off the word of God and the blood of the Lamb and took on new clothes. 
she started dressing like the other nations and worshiping their gods and entrenching herself in sin. So God raises up the kingdom of Assyria to take away the northern kingdom and the kingdom of Babylon to take away the southern kingdom where, where Isaiah is. And, you know, this isn't just an arbitrary punishment. It's not as if God could have just used anything, a tsunami, or he couldn't have just come in and leveled the country. Exile is a dramatic picture of what the sin of Israel has already affected inside her. God's saying to Israel, you want to live like the other nations? Then I will let the nations devour you. If you want to live like exiled people, then I will let you. God gives Israel what she wants, what she is lusting after. God gives Israel her false gods and life among the nations of the earth. He gives her the death that she is running after. She's consumed by her spirit of exile. In the language of Paul in the book of Romans, God gives them up to the debased mind and the lusts of her heart. In the show Breaking Bad, there's a character named Jesse Pinkman who keeps getting sucked back into drug dealing again and again and again. He tries to break free here and there. He tries to check himself into rehab. He gets sober once or twice. But his addiction and his compulsive criminal behavior overruns him, and he finds himself murdering someone for the first time. I want to read you what he says to his 12-step group as he's trying to reckon with the evil that he sees inside himself. So to set the stage, he's in this group, and he wants to start talking about this murder that he committed. But obviously he can't say that, so he tries to talk about it in the context of, I killed a dog, is what he's trying to explain to them. And so at first, the people in the group are trying to comfort him and give him some sense of like welcome and consolation, but eventually they start realizing, this wasn't an old dog, this wasn't one that was sick, you just did this, you just killed this dog, or so they think. And so they start turning on him and berating him for that and ridiculing him. And the lead counselor guy who's moderating the group is trying to calm everybody down. He's trying to say like, hey, this is a judgment-free zone. We're supposed to be accepting here. And he's trying to kind of ease off the, the judgment. But Jesse eventually has enough of the counselor. And he spits back against him and says, why not? Maybe they're right. You know, maybe I should have put it in the paper. Maybe I should have done something different. If you just do stuff and nothing happens, what's it all mean? What's the point? This whole thing is about self-acceptance. So no matter what I do, hooray for me, because I'm a great guy, it's all good. No matter how many dogs I kill, I just what? Do an inventory and accept? You know what? Why I'm here in the first place is to sell you drugs. You're nothing to me but customers. You are worthless to me. Just a bunch of junkies for me to throw away for a couple of bucks. Are you okay with that? Do you accept me? No, says the counselor. About time, says Jesse. And he leaves and walks into the night. In spite of all his darkness and misery, in spite of the image of a criminal he had committed to, Jesse couldn't live with the lie anymore. He couldn't take it. He couldn't stand being in the darkness of the deep forest, trying to hide under the image of the criminal, murderer, drug dealer, and reject that he had fashioned for himself. At his core, Jesse was longing for a way out, to be found out. And here's the crucial, crucial point. The way out that the counselor was giving to him wouldn't cut it for him. 
Jesse didn't want the thin fig leaf of self-acceptance or no judgment. Deep down, Jesse wants justice and judgment. He wants to be found out. He wants the facade to fall to the ground, to be exposed for the criminal and for justice to be carried out. He can't keep up the lie. So instead of letting other people soothe him with false pats on the back, he flees into the night saying, if you, counselor, will not send me into exile, I will send myself into exile. Well, that's you and me. That's all of us. Our sin devours us and casts us into exile. We carry Babylon in us wherever we go. We're like Jesse, eaten alive by our guilt and shame and pathology, dying for someone to take us seriously, for someone to call us out, for someone to say, where are you? As he walks past the woods where we're hiding. You know, the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous is to get you to say these words. I admit that I am powerless over alcohol and my life has become unmanageable. And if you know anyone that's ever gone through a group like that, or if you have gone through a group like that, you know how impossible it is to say those words. But it's also true that when people finally confess their sin, when they drop the charade, there's a sense of relief when they finally admit that they're in exile, when they finally give up and tell a friend their secret sin or their chronic addiction or their criminal record. There's a sense of relief at not having to live the lie anymore. You can't hide is terrifying, but you don't have to hide. That's a relief, isn't it? And if you're listening today for an exhortation or something to take home from the sermon, some kind of actionable step, it's this. Admit to yourself that you're in exile, that you're, you have no control over your sin and your life has become unmanageable. Let the word of God call you out. That's exposure. Let it call you out of exile. That's what the word of God does to you today. Yes, I am in exile. Yes, I am a sinner. In the words of Luther's liturgy, yes, I am in bondage to sin and cannot save myself. Well, that's us, the exiles. We look in the mirror and when we see a people who as Paul says in Ephesians, are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We are like Anselm, God's lonely exiles. We are all like Jesse, languishing in the whirlpool of our sin, looking for some cure for our exilic heart. And it is into this darkness of our exile that the word of the Lord comes to us and speaks to us. What does it say? Well, let's turn now in our Bibles to Isaiah 61 and see what the Lord has to say to Israel as she is in exile in Babylon. So for a brief word of context, I've already mentioned this a little bit before, but the book of Isaiah is broken largely into two literary sections. The first part of it is chapters 1 through 39, and that deals with Isaiah in Judah speaking to the kings and pronouncing oracles of judgment. The second half of it, which is where our reading is found, is in chapters 40 through 65. And that's the word that, is, that comes to the people in exile and announces the return home to Israel. So it's almost as if, oh, so in the beginning portion, we have Isaiah and the kings, but in the latter portion, Isaiah steps off the stage and the word of the Lord is delivered without a clear human speaker. It's almost as if the book goes to sleep in Judah before the exile, and then it wakes up in Babylon, where the word of God comes to those who are in captivity. And by the way, that's how the word of God comes to us. The word of God is eternally breaking into the world and coming to you. 
It is the eternal light which shines unconquered in the darkness, the infusion of clarity and sense into our blindness and confusion. So this movement from kings and prophets in the first part of the book to the word of God alone in the second part of the book is important theologically because it shows that the Lord is announcing something new to those who are in captivity. In the former part of Isaiah, the Lord uses prophets and kings to accomplish his aims. In the latter section of Isaiah, the Lord begins shaping or describing a new figure, his servant, a new anointed one, an Israelite of Israelites who will bear the word of God, who is anointed by God, who will be the focus and agent of God's redeeming work for Israel. Our passage today begins with this figure, this anointed one, opening his mouth to speak a song. I invite you to follow along with me as we dive into the text and do some careful reading, beginning in verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. So there are two things to notice about this figure, this anointed one, in this passage right here. His attitude and his attire, and it works so well alliteratively. So his attitude is exalted joy as he prepares to do the work for which he is anointed. This anointed one does not sigh and furrow his brow as he goes about his work. He does not begrudge his task, and he does not complain that he has given it to accomplish. The anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, sings in his heart for the task ahead of him. And we'll learn more about what this task is in a little bit. Second, this anointed one is attired in clothes, fitting his character and his task. You know, judges put on robes when they sit down at the bar to execute judgment. Soldiers put on war gear when they go out to fight. The uniform communicates our character and our vocation. What does this anointed one wear as he goes out to deal with Israel, faithless Israel, exiled Israel? Does he wear a judge's robe or a soldier's sword? Does he wear black, sober garments or even workmen's clothes? What does Christ wear when he comes to you today? Do you primarily think of him as a judge who puts on his robe to sentence you? Is he your boss who puts on a suit to do your end-of-the-year evaluation? A doctor who puts on his gloves to treat you? Well, friends, let the word of God teach you who your Savior is. He puts on the robe of a priest to absolve you and the robes of a bride to marry you. Christ comes to marry you and absolve you, not to sentence and treat you. Moving on, as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it, what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So now we shift metaphors from the attitude and attire of the anointed one to the land, the land left desolate barren, uncultivated, and wild, as Israel has been pulled into Babylon. And even your land today, the soil of your heart, the dry, packed ground of your life, is the garden of the Lord, which he will soften, water, 
plow, plant, and tend. Christ is the new Adam, the good gardener, who comes not to torch and burn, but to sow and raise to life. When Mary met the anointed one on the day of his resurrection, did you remember that she mistook him to be the gardener? Because he is the gardener, the one who suddenly appears not in the high rooms of the stately or the mighty or the perfect, the righteous, the important, but at the level of your dirt and the dust. Even as God at the beginning stooped down to make us from the dust and breathe into us the breath of life, so this same God comes to us in the anointed one to put his hands into our dirt and fashion us into a new image to spit in the dust to make mud and wipe the blindness from our eyes. This poem, this song continues in a chapter two. The anointed one says, for Zion's sake I will not keep silent and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. This is the anointed one describing himself as a priest again, for it is the work of the Levites to offer prayer and supplication on behalf of Israel, to not remain silent as they cry out over their people. So Christ prays over you today, as the author of Hebrew writes, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is a priest of Israel and the church, the true mediator who pours out his heart over us in prayer and intercession, who constantly presents his work to the Father, who in turn rushes to pardon and absolve those who are in Christ through the Spirit. You cannot dissuade Christ from this work of intercession. He refuses to keep silent. He refuses to stand by and watch your wick burn to the bottom and watch you slip deeper into the woods. Friends, Christ is not the counselor who watches you spit in his face and run out into the night. He is the one who pursues you and finds you where you hide. He has taken upon himself the mission to restore you to life with the Father, to set a light inside you, his light, which will shine before the people. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. This light which the anointed one puts inside his people is a radiant light a lamp set on a stand, a city built on a hill. Our light is not a witness to our own goodness, but to the goodness of the anointed one. The moon has no light of its own. It shines only what the sun gives it. We shine only what the Son of God gives us. Our light is petty, selfish, cheap, and easy to throw away. But the light of which the anointed one gives us is the light which is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not ours. It's given us as a gift. It's love and self-sacrifice. It's being in peace with your neighbor. It's contentment and joy. The prophet continues in the words of the anointed one, and we shall be called by a new name. 
No longer will you be called addict, slut, anxious, gossip, liar, cheater, murderer, failure, backslider, coward, freak, passive, damaged, or hopeless. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, and your land shall no longer be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For as the Lord delights in you, so shall your land be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Do you hear the wedding bells in this passage? Do you hear the words of covenant, vows, companionship, and holy love? Six days from now, Catherine and I are going to get married. And I know what it is for a bridegroom to rejoice at his bride. But I cannot, even for five minutes, get myself to believe that my God, the almighty Lord of hosts and the holy creator, looks at me the way I look at my bride. Surely he is displeased with me, frustrated at me, regrets that he ever chose me. Or maybe I've just disappointed him with a poor return on my investment. Well, I did not write Holy Scripture. So against my unbelief, I have the words of the prophet Isaiah, the words of the anointed one, and the brilliant, undeserved, unearned, dismerited, one-way love of God for sinners. Through the work of the anointed one, through the cross of Jesus Christ, the exile finds a home, The backslider is declared righteous. The guilty walks out innocent. The convict stands a free man. The filthy is washed clean. The burdened one is relieved. The forsaken one is married. The desolate one is comforted. This news is for you today, Tabernacle Church. It's in your very name. Christ, our high priest, has welcomed us into the Holy of Holies, that place where no profane thing dares to tread. He has dressed you as his priests and brought you before where only the high priest could go once a year. Are you a liar and a fraud? Wear his righteousness as your robe. Are you a chronic backslider and gossip? Put on your wedding clothes and join him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Whomever is baptized into Christ has put on Christ. We wear Christ as our garment. Jesus is our garment of salvation, our righteousness that we wrap around ourselves, our absolution and comfort that clothes our nakedness, the blood that blots out our sin. Just as Israel clothed herself in the word of God and the blood of the Paschal Lamb, so we too clothe ourselves in Jesus who is the word of God and the Lamb. He is scripture and sacrifice. He is the anointed one who brings us home from exile, the gardener who creates life out of the dust, the sacrifice who dies in our place, our priest who brings us before the presence of God, where we may stand and be not ashamed. In the last few minutes I have, I want to read you a poem written by the Anglican minister George Herbert. It's called Aaron, and he's reflecting on the priestly garments of Aaron in Leviticus. Holiness on the head, 
light imperfections on the breast, harmonious bells below, raising the dead to lead them unto life and rest. Thus are true errands dressed. Profaneness in my head, defects and darkness in my breast, a noise of passions ringing me for dead unto a place where is no rest. Poor priest, thus am I dressed. Only another head I have, another heart and breast, another music making live, not dead, without whom I could have no rest. In him I am well dressed. Christ is my only head, my alone only heart and breast, my only music <coughs> striking me even dead. But to the old man I may rest and be in him new dressed. So holy in my head, perfect in light in my dear breast, my doctrine tuned by Christ who is not dead but lives in me while I do rest. Come people, Aaron's dressed. Come people, dressed as Aaron is dressed. You high priest fitted for the court of God. You bride fitted for her wedding day. Stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Stand wearing the robes you have washed white in the blood of the Lamb. Christ has entered your darkness and your dust. He has followed you into the night. He has sought you in your exile. He has descended into your hell and brought you back to God. So, dear friends, in the name of Jesus Christ, welcome home. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.